0: Psalm 105 that we sang, Um, (coughs) that's what we're going to be reading about this morning as we consider Israel's time in the wilderness and the way in which God was revealing there to them Christ and calling them to trust in Him rather than in themselves, rather than in Moses, rather than in Egypt. So we're going to read the first seven verses Of Exodus 17, the first seven verses of Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord and the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do for this people with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people. And take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the people of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Beloved of God the Father, through Christ the Son, the people of Israel seemed to have a memory that was astoundingly short. And a faith that was amazingly weak. I mean, just look at our text for this morning. These were folks who had just seen in the preceding weeks and months how God was able to humble all of the supposedly powerful gods of Egypt. How He was able to deliver a great people of slaves who had no power, who had no weapons of their own, but He was able to deliver them out of the nation that had enslaved them. He was able to open up a path through the ocean, through the sea, through which they could pass and then defeat one of the greatest armies of its age. And now God was guiding them by means, not just of a man, but of a great and imposing pillar of cloud in the day and of fire at night, guiding them through the wilderness en route to a fertile land which God Himself had promised them. It seems to me that a people so abundantly blessed would be confident that God would never let them down. But no. Instead, we find them complaining, grumbling, contending against the man whom God had set over them. Rather than gratitude, they made demands. Rather than sing praise, they grumbled. We shake our heads in wonder that they could be so hard hearted. But are we so very different? We too are surrounded by evidence of God's power and God's grace. We should have no doubt after all the prayers that He has answered, after all the lives that He has changed, we should have no doubt that God is working all things for our good. Nonetheless, how often we complain about the circumstances we face and fear what the future might hold and doubt the promises of God. We should know better. But no. However, despite the contentious complaints of His people. God loves them, loves us. And so great is His grace that He uses even the complaints of His people to reveal His grace. And that's what we see in our text this morning. Israel's contentious complaints end up revealing the grace of Christ. Israel's contentious complaints reveal the grace of Christ. However, what we see at the beginning is not that revealing, but rather their grumbling. And so the first point that we examine this morning is the faithless contention of a thirsty people. The faithless contention of a thirsty people. That's what we see first. Let's take just a moment to get caught up on the exodus of Israel. Last time, we saw how Israel was instructed to prepare in chapter 13 for the night of Passover. Since that time, Egypt's firstborn have died, all of them. And the people of Israel were begged to leave that land. They were enriched by their neighbors as they did so, but they were told with no uncertain terms, Please leave. Following Moses, they ended up stuck between the Red Sea on the east and on the west, the the army of Pharaoh who had changed his mind at the last moment. But then they saw how God miraculously opened a path through the midst of the Red Sea, ushering them through on dry land. But then God used that same path to destroy and drown Pharaoh and his army. And so the people rejoiced. Since then they had been guided through the wilderness, following Moses in hiking from oasis to oasis in this wilderness land, as Moses followed the pillar of fire and cloud. It's not been an entirely smooth journey. Shortly after coming through the Red Sea, their song of praise having barely finished being proclaimed, the people began to grumble. There was no water. When they found water, it was bitter waters. It was completely undrinkable. But Moses prayed. And God showed him how to make that bitter water sweet. All was well for a little time. They enjoyed the beauty of the oasis at Elam with its 70 palm trees and its springs of water. But then entering the wilderness of Sin, which, by the way, doesn't mean sin as in doing something bad, but sin as in Sinai. As they entered into the wilderness of Sin, they grumbled more. Because there was no food. They were hungry. And the people complained even to the point of regretting leaving Egypt. How hard hearted, how short sighted can sinful men be to complain that they were better off under the harsh slavery of Egypt because they had food in their pots? But Moses prayed. And God again answered their need. He sent quail. So many quail that it covered their camp, their camp with birds to eat. And then God sent manna, the, the bread from heaven that would provide for them every day throughout their years in the wilderness. Sabbath days accepted. Time and again, God was teaching them in the wilderness. You can trust me. No matter what your need, if you ask, I will provide. If you request, I will meet your need. And so the journey brings them to a place called Rephidim. Basically the last stop before they get to Mount Sinai. But having arrived at Rephidim, the people are dismayed to find there's no water. Now folks understand, this isn't a small problem. When they left Egypt, they left with 600,000 men plus women and children along with a mixed multitude of Egyptians and others who had come to trust in the Lord, along with flocks and herds more numerous than could be counted. So they need lots of water and they need it often. But at Rephidim, there is none. Now listen, by this point, after the bitter water incident, after the quail and the manna, after seeing a highway open up through the Red Sea, by this point, we would expect Israel to know what to do when they come on a roadblock like this. First of all, don't panic. Second, do what Moses always does and pray to the Lord for help. And then third, trust God who led you here. Because he already has the answer worked out. That's how they should have responded when they came to Rephidim and found no spring of water. But instead, well, instead they threw down on Moses. They contended. They complained against him. They demanded that he give them what they could clearly see was not there to be given. And then they started to blame him for everything. Look at verse three with all of its misconceptions. And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Notice that they attribute to Moses their departure from Egypt and all of its woes. Now, on the one hand, they've completely overlooked the, the rich blessing they've been given. I mean, they were slaves. They had been free to do nothing but what Pharaoh commanded. They were so completely in his hand that Pharaoh could demand that their their children be slaughtered. And they had nothing to say about it. And yet, having been freed from that harsh, oppressive slavery, they scorned that freedom. They look at freedom and slavery as completely equal choices. What a tremendous show of ingratitude. But worse is the attribute of, of or the attribution of that freeing to Moses, as though it was his idea to deliver Israel, as though Moses had the power to overcome Pharaoh and his servants. It wasn't Moses, it was God who freed them, Yahweh who rescued them. To ignore that fact is stunningly faithless. It's hard to imagine being more ungrateful than Israel was being at this point. But it gets even worse. Because not only do they attribute this to Moses, but they attribute evil motives to him. You brought us out here just to kill us, didn't you? You did it all out of hatred. Well, now listen. That's just foolish. I mean, if Moses was able to do this, would he have done it just to destroy his own people? How dumb is that? I mean, look at what Moses had done. He had, endured. he had endured the doubt of the people. He had endured the hatred of the Egyptians. He had gone into Pharaoh's very presence, taking his life in his hands, not once, but numerous times to the point where Pharaoh finally said, if you see me again, you will die. And during all of this time, Moses Moses had left behind his peaceful life as a shepherd. Neglecting his wife and his children so that he could care for this ungrateful people. How blind they are to ignore the love that this man had shown them. And how ignorant of them to fail to recognize that it was God who had done all of this. God, who had shown them love. God, who had delivered them in His mercy. Folks, this is rebellion. Self-centered, blind, ignorant rebellion against man and God alike. God's people out in the wilderness, they want freedom, but, but they don't want to be inconvenienced. They don't want to be made to suffer at all. And now that they're out of their comfort zone, they want a scapegoat. Someone to blame for their disobedience. Someone that they can take their anger out on. What they should have done is trust in God to provide. God has provided perfectly up to this point. There's no reason not to trust him. But instead, they complain against Moses. They label him a troublemaker with bad motives. They let their anger capture their hearts and turn them away from God. Now, Moses isn't dumb. He sees through their anger. And identifies the real problem. Already back in verse 2. He says, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt or test the Lord? You see, that is what they were really doing. They're complaining about Moses. But what they're really doing is complaining against the Lord. Because he's the one who set Moses Over this people. And he's the one whom Moses has been following. To complain against Moses is simply to complain against God by proxy. So Moses calls them out on it. God is the one you're complaining against. God is the one you're testing. And when they don't listen, God saves them anyway. And so Moses names the place after their sin. Look at verse 7. He called the name of that place Massah and Meribah. Massah means testing or tempting. The people had tested God by complaining against Moses. Their complaints were a challenge. They were alleging God brought them out there to die, that God had no power to give them what they needed. That's a testing of God and that's something no man should ever do. And then he names the place a second name, Meribah, which means contention. A name that would forever remind the people of Israel of their rebellious hearts. They complained. They fussed. They foolishly despised the God who had given them everything they needed. Moses would not let Israel forget their sin of testing and contending, lest they continue in that sin. Do we ever do this? Do we ever act the way Israel is acting? testing God, contending against those whom God has set over us and thereby against God Himself. Do we ever do that? We lack something we desire. Maybe a a physical possession. I want a a house, a car, the latest style of jeans. Maybe it's a gift or an opportunity I lack. I wish I could speak like that guy. Why can't I have her talent? I'm so ugly compared to her. I wish I had that guy's strength. No one ever offers me that kind of job. I have, I have terrible luck. Or maybe we complain about our lack of success. You know, I, I always try, but I never manage to succeed. It's like, it's like everything's stacked against me. And when we face these situations, folks, there are a number of possible responses. We could recognize that we've done wrong and accept the blame if that's the case. Or we could, in faith, recognize that God has simply ordained something different for us than that which we desire. God has not ordained for me to have a new car at this point. God has not determined that I need a larger house. God has set me in this job, not that one. Given me these gifts, not those. Or we could... if if what we're complaining about involves our failure. We could learn from our failure. We could strive prayerfully for God to to enable us to change. In each of those cases, we would be looking to God, right? Acknowledging that He's sovereign over our situation and that He doesn't make mistakes. That we can trust Him. And that if anything is going to change, He needs to do it. That's what we should do, but... But how often instead we're tempted to murmur and mutter and blame? I'd have a better job if my teachers had done a better job teaching me, equipping me. You know, my, my life's terrible and it's because my parents are just clueless. They just make my life miserable. That lousy minister, he can barely keep me awake, much less help me. Those no-good politicians, those crooked cops, those foolish elders. We blame everybody but ourselves. Focusing our wrath on the people over us. The people whose labors did not prepare us. The people who, who didn't give us the opportunities we desire. But folks, when we do that, we're complaining against God. He's the one who gave you those parents. He's the one who set those teachers over you. He's the one who put those politicians in office. He's doing it for our good, perhaps to bless us in a way that we refuse to see, perhaps to chastise us for the sins that we've embraced. But when we complain about them, it is God whom we are complaining against. It is our unbelief that we're revealing. We're, we're revealing that we don't really trust God after all. We think we could do a better job. Just give us a day on the throne. Folks, such contending against God, even by proxy, even when we're complaining against people whom He has set over us, it's faithless. And it reveals a spiritual thirst. You see, those who are spiritually strong, spiritually healthy, they don't complain, they don't murmur. Instead, in every circumstance, they rejoice that God is on the throne and that His will is being done. Think of Paul in Philippians. He's under house arrest. He's potentially facing the death penalty when he comes before Caesar. There are people out there who, mind-blowingly, are preaching the gospel simply in order to increase Paul's discomfort, Paul's persecution. Humanly speaking, he had every reason to complain, but instead he rejoices and he rejoices and he rejoices all the more because he sees that God is working in this situation. His chains have strengthened the conviction of others. The gospel is being proclaimed even by some people who have poor motives. Others are are being strengthened, empowered, built up because they see that being imprisoned is not the worst thing that could happen to you. Even in prison... Paul rejoices because he has faith in God. Brothers and sisters, when we complain, when we mutter, when we grumble, we show that we lack confidence that God is able to turn all things for our good. That we lack faith that God is strong enough or good enough or loving enough. The solution, the only solution, is not to complain, it's not to grumble, it's not to riot. It's Christ Christ. Christ alone can fill us with God's love. Christ alone can convince us that God is strong enough and good enough to fix this. Christ alone can cause us to be content even when the situation seems horrific. He is the one who led Paul to be confident in Philippians. It's because of Christ that Paul could say, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Apart from Christ, we are absolutely guaranteed to be miserable, thirsting for we know not what. But in Christ, our thirst is quenched and we rejoice confident in God and in His grace. Folks, we must trust in Christ. We must. There's no other way to be content. No other way to be confident. No matter the situation, we must trust in Christ. Rejecting the faithless contention of a thirsty people. And when we do put our trust in Christ, rich is our blessing. We see that in the second part of our text. Not not because the people suddenly trust Christ, but because Moses trusts Christ before them. Praying in faith, and in answer to Moses' faith, God blesses them. And so we see the faithful provision of our mighty God. The faithful provision of our mighty God. It all begins with the intercession. Of Moses. He cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. This is the proper response when we face a situation that's intolerable. It was intolerable that they had no water. They, they needed the water. But rather than complain, rather than grumble, rather than seek to oppose God, Moses prays. He asks for help, knowing that God is able. To give them exactly what they need. Exactly when and how they need it. Moses is really showing us an image of Christ here. Christ. Who said repeatedly. I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will. But the will of him who sent me. Even Even in the face of the most horrific suffering that any man has ever experienced, even on the eve of that suffering, Jesus didn't flee, he didn't curse God, no, he said, Thy will be done. Moses shows us Christ by seeking to lead God's people in trusting him. However, the most vivid image of Christ in this story is not Moses, it's the rock. We know that. Because in First Corinthians chapter ten I can get there. In First Corinthians chapter ten the apostle tells us I do, do not want you to be unaware, brothers. That all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. You see, the rock at Rephidim and the water that would flow from it, that was to be the image of Christ that would show them where their hope is to be found. How so? Look at what God instructs Moses. Verses 5 and 6. Moses is to go before the people. He's to lead them, to guide them in trusting the Lord, in following His commands. Because God's going to command something that makes no sense. But He's going to show them we don't trust in our own logic. We don't trust in our own wisdom. We don't even trust in what we see, science. We trust in God. Our own eyes Deceive us. Our own hearts lead us astray. But God never leads us in the wrong way. With Him, Moses must take two things. The elders and the rod. The elders to witness. All the people wouldn't be able to see what Moses was doing. So the elders would bear witness that there was no trickery involved. And the rod. Moses' rod. Well, it was a shepherd's rod. Normally used... To guide the sheep. To discipline them when they were doing wrong. To drive off that which would harm the sheep. But Moses had used that rod in a spectacular way at God's command. To inaugurate the curses against Egypt. It was with the rod that he struck the river. And it turned to blood. And all the fresh water of Egypt turned to blood. That rod had become a symbol of judgment, a symbol of God's wrath. But now Moses would take that rod and at God's command, that instrument that brought death to Egypt would bring life to Israel. That instrument that had polluted the waters they needed to live in Egypt now would bring forth the waters they need to live for Israel. Recognize this command is a test for Moses. The people are grumbling louder and louder, ready to kill Moses when he says they're almost ready to stone me. The way that he says that in Hebrew indicates that he's not in doubt. They are about to do it. It's imminent. And God calls him to do something that, as I said, makes no sense on the face of it. Hitting the rock with a rod, hitting stone with a stick, that's not going to help anything. Unless God does it. Moses trusts Him. Does as He's commanded. A show of faith. But also, a call to faith for God's people. They need that water desperately. You can live without food for like three weeks. You can live without shelter in a place like the wilderness of sin. For longer than that even. But you can only live without water for an average of three days. Israel desperately needs this water. And God is the only one who can give it. Listen, there are a number of really great lessons wrapped up in this text. The fact that that God goes before us preparing the way. The fact that the elders are to take the lead in showing the people how to, to serve the Lord. The fact that God never neglects the needs of His people. All of those are excellent lessons, but they are not the main lesson here. The heart of what God wants us to see in these first seven verses of Exodus 17 is that God provides faithfully for our deepest thirst. Not just the thirst of our bodies. In John 4, Jesus meets a woman outside of the Samaritan city of Sychar. His disciples have gone to get food. She comes out in the middle of the day to get water, which is unusual. Tells you that there's something wrong with this woman. Jesus does the unthinkable. Normally a man wouldn't speak to a woman that he didn't know, much less a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. But he looks at her, he says, can you draw me some water from the well? And she's dumbfounded. You, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, to get you water? Won't it be unclean in your eyes? She's a little offended. But Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she says, living water. Our father Jacob gave us this well. This is good water. What water is it that you're going to give us? What, what is this water? And Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water from the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, that is what we really are thirsting. All men are really thirsting. Israel thought that what they really needed most was water from a spring. But their true need was for Christ. Their true need was a thirst of the soul for a restored relationship with God, for a renewed relationship that would allow them to trust no matter what happened, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what they faced. At Rephidim, God shows them He will quench the thirst of all of those who trust in Him. Moses obeys the command. He strikes the rock. The water pours forth. The people drink the water that God supplies, quenching the thirst of their bodies. But for those given eyes to see truly, They see more because in that water pouring forth so improbably from the rock. They see the faithfulness of God who provides for the thirst of his people. They see the power of God that can meet their every need perfectly. They see the life of God poured forth for those who trust him in that water pouring out of the rock. Those with eyes to see saw Christ. Christ who refreshes both body and soul. Christ who gives life to the soul of those who trust Him. They saw Christ and they praised God anew. Trusting Him in a way they never had for every need they ever would have. And for those who only saw water? Well, they continued to complain. They continued to test God and their bodies littered the wilderness where they fell in unbelief. You see, that's the choice before us. We all need the same water that Israel needed. Water that quenches the body, sure. But we need the living water of Christ that quenches the soul. Apart from that water, we have no hope, no help, none at all. But we can have that water if only we will trust in Him. If only we will embrace His promises and refuse to doubt. Brothers and sisters, our God is so powerful that He can even use our faithless contention and grumbling To reveal His grace in Christ. That's what He did with Israel of old. Our calling is to learn their lesson rather than embracing their contention. And if we do, the faithful provision of our mighty God will meet our every need. Not just today, but every day. Not just in this life, but throughout eternity. So, brothers and sisters, let us look to Christ for our salvation. And then let us look to Christ for our work, for our friendships, for our difficulties and trials in life. Trusting that He will turn every last detail for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And may He receive all the glory that He deserves. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are merciful beyond all measure. We pray that You would help us to trust in You as You deserve. And that You would silence the voice of contention and complaining from our lips. Teaching us, rather than to complain against You, or to complain against those whom You've set over us, to trust that You know what You're doing, that You will give what we need. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.